Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Jill Rabin. She's a pediatric SLP and international board-certified lactation consultant who has been working with the birth to three-year-old population since 1986. She is based in the north suburbs of Chicago, where she has a private practice working with young babies and their families to evaluate and provide treatment for feeding and speech-language issues. Her areas of specialty include facilitating breastfeeding in at-risk populations, such as preterm infants, babies with tethered oral tissues, and babies with Down syndrome. She uses her adapted baby-led weaning approach to transition babies with feeding challenges to solids. She advocates for responsive and child-directed feeding approaches to improve feeding skills in infants and babies with feeding aversion. She contributed two chapters to the book Breastfeeding and Down Syndrome and has written three blog posts about breastfeeding and Down Syndrome on the Julia's Way website. She co-authored a book entitled Your Baby Can Sell Feed Too with Jill Rapley about the adapted baby-led weaning approach. She has been featured on multiple podcasts regarding breastfeeding and bottle refusal, breastfeeding and Down Syndrome, and use of her adapted baby-led weaning approach with babies with feeding challenges. She speaks nationally and internationally on these topics. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Jill. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I'm flattered you asked me to be on your podcast. Yeah. All right. So tell the people a little bit about yourself. So I'm a speech pathologist and board certified lactation consultant, and I reside in the northern suburbs of Chicago, but I'm originally 
born in New Jersey, and I got my undergraduate degree and graduate degree at Boston University. So I'm really an East Coast girl at heart, but I've been here for um, 30 plus years. And I work primarily with infants to three-year-olds through early intervention. And I work with children that have complicated feeding issues. I work with a lot of moms who are having breastfeeding difficulties. Maybe their baby has a diagnosis of Down syndrome, which is a specialty area for me where I do a Zoom groups for moms who are pregnant with a baby with Down syndrome or have a baby with Down syndrome. I work with babies who have feeding aversion, and I help babies with feeding challenges transition to solid foods using my approach, which is called the adapted baby led weaning approach. Awesome. I love it so much. I, what's interesting and why I really wanted to have you on Jill is just experiences with my son. And and we knew that there was going to be something at birth. They kept saying, we think it's down syndrome, but it wasn't confirmed down syndrome. But I just remember feeling like, and it ended up just being a different chromosomal abnormality that wasn't Down syndrome, but I just remember being like, well, what can we do to prepare? You know, and they just kept saying, well, there's nothing really you can do to prepare. It depends however the baby presents. But I love that you actually do have things that can prepare moms because it's so different from all of the typical or advice that's out there for typically developing kids. So, And I agree with that. And I actually, I meet with moms. If moms have a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome or any type of chromosomal abnormality, I meet with them and how they can prepare at birth of what they can do. Yeah. So, and I'm actually developing a class now with a dietitian I work with. We're going to do a class for pregnant moms that will talk about ways to get prepared nutritionally, developmentally, um, for breastfeeding, solid foods, all those things. Um, because we feel like if you can give people that information before they have a baby, it's going to empower them and things are going to work a little bit better if you go in prepared. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure if you know much of my story, but my son was in the NICU for 15 days and the only reason was feeding. He just couldn't get the volume in that they required. And so finally, after 15 days, I was like, we are leaving because they did not have any there was no therapy involved. There was, they didn't have any skills to teach us. It was just, we're just going to wait for him. And I was like, we're not going to do this here. I'm, we're going to do this at home. Um, so I just, you know, I wish that not only did I have the tools during those 15 days to help him feed, but I also wish that, you know, the NICU staff, and it's obviously something why I'm so passionate about getting SLPs more into the NICU and also getting them exposure to, you know, how we can help these moms too. I, I agree. And I was NICU based for 12 years and, you know, we know how NICUs work, right? There's, it's very volume driven and very schedule driven. And what a lot of moms will tell you is, especially moms who want to breastfeed or provide breast milk that they will do anything to get their baby out of the hospital. So they will push the volume and do bottles just to get those babies out and get them home. So I feel like we, we there's a lot of work that needs to be done in our special care nurseries where we can do more responsive feeding because we do know that a lot of babies coming out of NICU are going to struggle with a and a lot of that comes from how we how we do feeding in the NICU. Yep. All right. Well, where should we start? I guess that was a, a good segue, but yes. <laughs> we can talk a little bit first about, you know, what baby led weaning is. I'm not sure how much you know about it. Yeah, I, I would love to talk about it actually, because what's interesting is I have two kids and both could not be polar opposites from each other. And my daughter was typically developing and things that I went through with her, I was so terrified of because I, of my experiences with my son. But then someone was like, oh, this is like baby led weaning that you're doing with her. And I was like, I don't even know what that is or what was that a thing? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would love, I would love to hear more about it. Uh, absolutely. So baby led weaning is an approach. It, it's actually probably been, it has been around since the beginning of time. This is how baby people actually fed their babies 
baby food or the introduction of spoon feeding with purees, that came about in the 40s. So th- so our culture changed when that happened. That was around the time when formula came about. And when baby food was developed in the 40s, you know, women were going to work because their husbands were away at war. And the companies were seeing how profitable, you know, the baby food industry would be. And again, you can't you can't spoon you, a baby that's four months old, which is when babies were starting to get solids at that point. They can't feed themselves. The only way that they can get food into their mouth is some, if someone is putting it in their mouth. So that's really where the culture started with spoon feeding, right? Where, where it became adult directed. And, and what would happen is that, that age of starting solids started moving back. There were even some situations where babies were getting solid foods at three weeks of age. There's a great book by Amy Bentley. I think it's called, here, let me make sure I get the title right. It's called Inventing Baby Food. Phenomenal book. And it talks about the history of feeding. And it really shows how culturally just spoon feeding became embedded in our culture. But come along, move forward to the 2000s, Jill Rapley, who actually is the co-author of the book that I wrote that came out in August about my approach, uh, which is called Adaptive Baby Led Weaning. And Jill Rapley was what's called a health visitor, which would be the equivalent of a public health nurse here in the U.S., and what she found is she would, you know, she was in people's homes all the time and seeing a lot of people struggling with feeding. And she really saw that babies tended to do much better when you just kind of put food in front of them and you let them just kind of decide what they were going to eat and how much of it. And she then coined the term baby led weaning in the early 2000s and then wrote a book that came out in 2008. And that really caused an explosion. Lots of people started to follow that approach. And then fast forward even more in 2019, CNN published a study about there being toxic chemicals in, in baby food, like 95% of the baby foods had mercury, cadmium, um, arsenic. And I think lots of parents got really frightened by that. And I think that pushed more people towards that baby led weaning approach. So what baby led weaning actually is, is this is an approach where the family eats together. The parents present the same foods that they're eating. They might present it in a different way. They might mash up a potato that they're eating, or they, they, we use a lot of strips where baby holds one part of the strip and enough is coming out of their hand that they can gnaw on it. And they just eat the same food that you're eating. And really in the first couple of months, it's not about volume intake of food. It's really about learning about food, exploring food getting exposed to food. And it's just a very natural progression. And what's nice about that progression is if a baby is breastfeeding, they're going to determine the the weaning process because they're going to determine how much food they take in. So babies, if they're breastfeeding and they're doing baby led weaning, tend to breastfeed longer because they're setting the pace. Everybody eats together. It's completely child-directed. Nobody is feeding the baby. And and I think if you went out there and you asked different people, a physician, a mom, a therapist, you might get very different interpretations or definitions of what traditional or real baby-led weaning is, which leads me to the research issues because there's a lot, there is research out there, but Every research article will say there needs to be more research done about baby led weaning. And that's because everyone's interpretation and definition of it is different. It's hard to study something that's not specifically defined. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love your description because that's literally exactly what my daughter did to me. And I, so coming from the NICU that, you know, issues that I had with my son and 
you know, we had everything pureed and we had to get so much in them every day and everything was so calculated and it was not, you know, mealtimes were not a social enjoyable aspect. They were, I had so much anxiety over mealtimes with him. And then when I had my daughter, she was not interested in baby food at all. And she just always wanted what was on our plates, always wanted to try what we were eating. And I was like, no, you need to eat the baby food. Like you're a baby. <laughs> but then I just, I, you know, in talking with, with friends at our pediatric SLPs, they're like, no, that's okay. That, you know, that's baby led weaning. You can let her try some of that. And so it was an interesting paradigm shift for me from having one child one way to another child that had no interest in baby food and just wanted all the people food. And she's still that way. She eats very grown up meals and doesn't like kid food. So, right. and, and that's, what's really neat about it. And that's how some people come to baby led weaning because their child won't accept. Yeah. There's actually a, a social media account called real food littles and she had twins and they were not having being fed by someone else. And that's how she came to baby led weaning. It also happens to families where they have a lot of kids and the mom's like, Oh my God, I can't <laughs> yeah. deal with this baby food thing. I don't have time. I can't afford to buy all these glass jars of baby food. So they just start giving their kids real food and you're significantly more relaxed with each child you have too. So you're not is worried about, you know, giving them real food because a lot of concern with baby led weaning is people are terrified of choking, right? And actually there's a a research article by someone by the name of Taylor. uh, I think that was also in 2017. And he talks about how baby led weaning with the research, there's no increased risk of choking. There's no iron deficiency with using this approach and there's no growth faltering. And I would say those are the main three things that people worry about choking, iron and growth. Yeah, I, I know I was terrified of choking with her, but yeah, interesting. Yes, and, and I do feel that babies who learn to eat with real food tend to be safer with eating because they're used to moving food around in their mouth. They're used to taking bites off of things. They're used to seeing foods presented in many different ways, not just liquidy pureed spoon-fed into their mouth. If you spoon-feed a baby for their first three months and then you start to give them pieces of food or real food, they're going to use the same method. They're just going to try to swallow it. So they are going to be more likely to choke on something. Whereas a baby who's doing baby led weaning in the first three months, they're gnawing on strips. They've really learned to chew and move things around in their mouths. They they know that you do different things with different foods. I don't think babies who are spoon fed only learn that the same way. It's, it's so fascinating you said that because even at Thanksgiving, my daughter just wanted turkey, but she didn't want gravy on it or anything. And she was eating it and she spits it out. And she goes, mama, I took too much. And I was like, oh, that's okay, babe. And then she took another bite and she's like, it's dry. And I was like, yeah, it, we we could put some gravy on it, make it easier. And she's like, hard to chew. And I was like, yeah, it's okay. And so it, I always found it so fascinating with her that she very much understood like safety. You know, she always, you know, even when she was nine, 10 months, she would spit things out if, if there was like a big chunk in it or something like that. She was very, I think, aware of that, which I just found so fascinating with her. And I think that's what's important that babies learn that skill because, you know, they're not always going to be what, what happens when they're at preschool or they're somewhere else. They need to be able to protect themselves and remove food and spit it out. And you brought up a great point. Adding gravy to food, adding moisture to food makes it easier for babies to eat and to swallow. So she was, she's, she's already figuring out all those properties like, okay, this is too hard for me to swallow. It's dry. Something else needs to be happening here. And that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Okay. You know, so. Let's go to the danger. Like a lot of healthcare professionals, especially pediatricians, are going to tell you that baby led weaning isn't safe. You can't be doing that. I can't tell you how many 
parents have come to me and said, my, 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 my pediatrician is a hundred percent against this. And I would say that the reason that is, is because again, that pediatrician's interpretation of baby led weaning is maybe they saw something online. It, in a lot of times there's parent Facebook pages and, you know, parents are not going to understand feeding skills and feeding development the way a therapist would. So they might be presenting things that are not appropriate for that child's skill level. So you're going to see a lot more significant gagging. And with my approach, which is called adaptive baby led weaning, it's much more systematic. The way that we use foods is we're working on skills and we're slowly, gradually moving to different things that the baby's skills are dictating the baby is ready for. So when I see that a baby can you know, move their tongue to the side of their mouth, I know that they might be able to start to do pieces because they have the skill to move their tongue from the middle to the side of their mouth and move that food piece to the side for chewing. So a lot of it is is skill-based. And I think that, you know, doctors are telling parents this without really understanding what baby led weaning is. And in the first three months of baby led weaning, it's not about volume intake. It's about skill development. And what happens as a result of that skill practice by nine months, these babies really start to, to become much more proficient chewers and they start to take in more food volume. And then they slowly, you know, increase the food intake and then their milk intake starts to lessen where they, they again dictate that weaning process. And I think therapists, also think that a lot of therapists, they think that spoon feeding is necessary. They absolutely think that, you know, everyone wants, always wants research about baby led weaning, like where's the evidence-based research, but where's the evidence-based research about spoon feeding? There's none. It's a cultural phenomenon that came about in, like I said, in the forties. So there, there isn't research to back up spoon feeding, but yet we're supposed to qualify why baby led weaning is, is okay. So I, I do think that a lot of people think that the method is, is dangerous. And in 2010, I watched a video uh, that of Jill Rapley's approach and I was blown away by these babies that could feed themselves all these different foods. I remember seeing a baby that was nine months old holding an apple that was peeled and gnawing on it. And I was shocked that a baby could do that. So I thought, how am I going to take that approach and adapt it to my population? Because I work with a lot of little ones with Down syndrome and those babies with Down syndrome often are fed by an adult through their toddler years. So I started making adaptations to baby led weaning for babies that had more motor difficulties. And I created a whole approach to get those babies to be able to transition to baby led weaning. So you make those adaptations in the beginning until the baby's much more proficient about bringing food to their mouth. And then they just do baby led weaning like everyone else. Yes. So, um, it, it, that was a, that actually that, that DVD of Jill's changed my whole career and path as a, as a feeding therapist. Awesome. Yeah. I, th- I think one of the biggest myths too, is that, you know, you don't just like hand a baby a steak and walk away. Like I, I think, you know, people don't realize that there actually is sort of a methodology to it. And, and so I'm glad to hear more about your adapted approach as well, because I, you know, no, no mother's just handing their baby a steak and walking away. At least I hope not. So absolutely. And, and, and see what they, and what I teach all of my parents that I'm working with is why are we using that food? What skill are we working on? So in the beginning, when babies are bringing steak to their mouth, we're not, we don't want the baby to ingest that steak. That's not what we're doing at all. We're exposing them to taste. We're exposing them to iron. We're working on a little bit of jaw strength right? Um, We're working on hand-to-mouth skills. We're working on eye-hand coordination. We're working on core engagement. We're working on so many different skills just by bringing that food to our mouth and gnawing on it. And and babies at that age at six months, and I, I start with steak a lot, 
if they, when they get to the point where they start gripping and pulling, that's when we're going to move away from that food and we're going to go to something different, you know, and then we'll return to that much later on when they're able to pull off a piece of something and chew it thoroughly. But in the beginning, we, we actually use celery sticks. We use raw carrot. We might use a pepper strip. We might use jicama. We use all kinds of strips and they're firm strips because we're working on up, down, chewing, jaw strength, tongue lateralization. So all those things that we're doing, we're using food shape, size, and texture therapeutically to work on skill. And we're being super careful. You know, obviously, again, if babies can get pieces off of something and they're not ready to chew it, we stop using those those hard strips. Then we move on to something called food teethers or true food teethers. So a true food teether would be a food that you gnaw on that doesn't yield a piece. So a rib bone, a corn cob with the kernels shaved off, a mango pit where you shave all the flat, you take all the flesh off of the mango or a pineapple core, which is really, really firm. So we use those and babies get great jaw strength work and resistive work and tongue lateralization by using these true food teethers, but no pieces come off. Interesting. So, so that's kind of where we start. And then, then we'll move on to like preloaded spoons where we mash up real table foods. I like to use real foods because they're more nutrient dense. So we mash an avocado. We might mash an avocado with an egg to, to give an allergen exposure of egg. And then we, we have a special spoon that's flat and we stick it in that mash and we literally just hand the spoon to the baby and the baby brings it to their own mouth. And, and with adapted baby led weaning, we do use what's called bridge devices. So we might use something called a silicone feeder, which almost looks like a little pacifier with handles and it has holes in it. And we would stick a food in there and the baby would hold that and bite on it and it would come through the holes. And again, you're working on chewing hand to mouth and you're working on self feeding. So if you have a baby who has motor difficulties, who, you know, might struggle with holding a strip of food or something slippery, they can actually feed themselves using that silicone feeder. So we use that bridge until they have sufficient ability to use their hands and fingers to self-feed. Interesting. Yeah. So that so that's sort of how the progression works. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. So with, and this does not need to be done with babies who have neurotypical development that are doing baby led weaning, but babies who have feeding challenges who are going to need adapted baby led weaning because adapted baby led weaning makes those adaptations for skill challenges. What we might need to do is we might need to use something called the sensory motor approach. And that's an approach created by Lori Overland. She has a book with Robin Walsh and it's called the sensory motor approach to feeding. And it's a very systematic approach where they use what's called pre-feeding exercises. So they'll do a lot of things preparatory wise to work on skill, to work on jaw strength, jaw stability, side to side tongue movement, lip closure to promote swallowing. So we would start a lot of those pre-feeding exercises with a baby who might have a diagnosis, right? Like Down syndrome, Williams syndrome, Pratt or Willie, any of those things. We would, we would do a pre-feeding program. And then once they start doing real foods, we might do more what's called therapeutic feeding. So we might help the baby place the food in an area where they're going to use their lateral biting surfaces versus putting it in the middle or center of their mouth where they're sucking on it. So we're going to do pre-feeding and therapeutic feeding. And we're also going to use something called task analysis where we're going to break down all the skills. So we look at breastfeeding and we make sure that they're doing all the things they need to do with their tongue, jaw, lips. Um, if bottle feeding, same thing, same thing with soft. And whatever skills are missing, we're going to address that with pre-feeding and therapeutic feeding. So we will use those methods to support feeding in babies who have challenges. Awesome. Okay. You work with babies with Down syndrome. I'd love to sort of hear, you know, a little bit more about some of the adaptive 
tools that you use or techniques that you use for those populations? Yeah, so I work a ton with babies with Down syndrome. I'd say that's that's probably the, the main population I work with. And I work with people from all over the world with coaching them, you know, and I had a book that came out in August. I also have a very um, active professional Instagram where I show a lot of videos and give ideas. And I think it's really helpful to people around the world because we don't realize in our country how great the services are compared to other places. And there are people around the world whose children have a diagnosis and there's no therapeutic intervention. And they are really, you know, kind of flying by the seat of their pants and trying to manage it themselves. But, you know, populations that I have used this with, I've done this with uh, babies with Prader-Willie, Williams syndrome. Babies with extreme prematurity, we know that preemies, especially really tiny preemies who had extended NICU stays, they often have a lot of aversion to foods. I find that babies with aversion, if they have an aversion to the bottle or breast in those first six months of life, if you use this approach from six months on, and it's because it's so child-directed, you can completely eradicate that aversion. And I have that with a lot of babies with pre, that are preterm. I, I feel like it's been super helpful. I worked with a little guy with Noonan syndrome that had a horrible aversion to the bottle, and his mother would have to feed him upstairs in his room with the lights off and very quiet. If someone even walked in the hallway while he was eating, that was the end of the feeding. So we, we switched, familiar. Yes. We switched to, you know, feeding was so hard and scary for him. And we, we did an adapted baby led approach when he started solids and he became an amazing eater. And that aversion went right out the door because we put him in control. And I, I, his mom sent me a really funny text when he started preschool and she said that he really liked it. The only issue he had is he didn't understand why he couldn't have a sec- seconds at snack time. So his eating completely changed. So babies with a diagnosis, babies with aversion, any really sensory kind of baby, baby who is a little picky about touching things or who's wired a little bit differently is a little bit more sensitive, or maybe their siblings in the home that are super picky. Maybe the parents struggle with solids. It's a great approach for anybody who struggles with feeding, because I do think that the child directedness of it really helps a lot because the babies and the drivers. Cool. Awesome. I love hearing that. Uh, I also would say, um, I do want to say too, that when I started this approach, so I started using it in 2010 and in 2016, I gave a big feeding conference here locally in Illinois. And I remember prior to starting the conference, a couple of people that I knew in the audience came up to me and they said, I just want to let you know, you know, there's people out here that think that what you do is really dangerous. You know, people think baby led weaning is dangerous with neurotypical babies. You can imagine the response with people who, you know, with, with children with feeding challenges, and then you're going to do that approach. They think you're, you're really doing something that's just out of this world crazy. So anyway, I, I kind of laughed when they said that. And I said, well, let's see what they think after they see the presentation. Cause this was something that I had already been doing at that point for six years. I was very systematic about it. I know it's safe with babies. I know, understand feeding development. I do this every day with babies. And I think that 
finally, I, I feel like parents have definitely come around and they think the approach is great. I think therapists are slowly coming around. I feel like the younger generation is a little bit more accepting of an approach like this because they, they see the benefits of it and they see how these babies become great feeders, great chewers. They're, they're not selective eaters. They like a variety of foods. So I think it, it was really difficult in the beginning. I think what really propelled the adapted baby led weaning approach out there into the world is I did a, I did an app presentation with Lori Overland and a lot of people followed her and a lot of feeding professionals that were pretty well known came to that talk. This is pre-pandemic. And I feel like when they saw that Lori was endorsing it and thinking it was an okay thing to do, I think that that changed a lot of minds out there in the feeding community. So I think that that people are coming around and they're seeing the benefits to using this approach, not only with neurotypical babies, but babies that are neurodivergent as well. Let me ask you, Jill, how did you get into, and, and I'm trying to word this not in like a judgmental way, how did you get into working with babies with Down syndrome or babies with these specialty conditions? And where I'm going with this is as a mom with the challenges that we've had with my son, anytime somebody comes to me and has an approach or has experience with kids with these other conditions, it's so refreshing, to be honest. And I'm willing to listen to them and I'm willing to hear them out because I, I about, I don't know, if I had to put a number on it across his entire lifespan, 80% of the therapists that we've dealt with have all said, oh, I've never worked with a baby with these conditions or with these types of deficits. So I don't really know where to start. Right. And so... As a, as a mom, it's refreshing to have somebody, even if it's controversial or even if other professionals don't quote unquote believe in it, it's still refreshing that you've had these experiences and not only experiences, but successful experiences as well. Well, I think that, you know, my love for babies with Down syndrome started in graduate school. I had, um, I had two babies in the little language group that I did and I just adored them. And that's really where my love for that population started. And then, you know, I was hospital based for years. I worked in a a hospital in Chicago. I always did early intervention and I did, you know, feeding, swallowing, but I I just kept, I would always take the patient with Down syndrome. It's like, oh, I'll take them. I'll take them. So over the course of many years, it it really just became an area of specialty for me. I I volunteer for a place called Gigi's Playhouse. I don't know if you know about that, but it's a Down syndrome um, achievement center. I I do Zoom groups for, for moms that again, like I I said that are pregnant with babies with Down syndrome, pumping for a baby with Down syndrome, or trying to breastfeed a baby with Down syndrome. So the more you learn about that population, the more people you take from that population, and then you become, you know, more of an expert yeah. in that field. And yeah. I would, yeah. I would say that I am pretty, pretty well known in the Down syndrome community, even in the UK, because I do a lot of lectures for the UK about this approach. And I feel like, so that's kind of how I've become expert in it. And then what happens is, you know, parents are, when you have a child who's struggling, and I'm sure you've done this many times, you Google search and you're like, Oh, look at this, oh my that. God. You, yeah. and that's yeah. kind of how people got to me. You know, they might Google, you know, maybe they did baby led weaning with their older kids. And they want to do it with their child with Down syndrome, but they're afraid and they Google that and it comes up. And, and now my book will come up with that about, you know, cause the book is all about how to do that with children with challenges. And what I found is 
that, you know, there's lots of similarities in the different populations, you know, with Proud or Willie, um, those babies have a lot of issues with low muscle tone. So very similar to Down syndrome. So then that brought that crowd in. So I feel like they, you know, they've all kind of seen babies with similar characteristics and they're realizing, oh, that could work with for my child as well. And again, I never created this approach to use with children with feeding aversion, but by accident, I found that it worked really well with that population. So that's kind of how I've, you know, it's, it's, you always look back at your career and you're like, how did this happen? Like how, how uh, yeah, 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 you know? yeah, and, and yeah. it just, it's kind of amazing. And that happened with me, even with, with breastfeeding, I, I worked in a NICU for years and I thought, my goodness, I'm the feeding expert. And I was pregnant with my daughter in a breastfeeding class. And I'm like, I work in a NICU and I know nothing about breastfeeding. This is a crime. So that's how I w- went into lactation. So sometimes, you know, you, it's, it's interesting how your career works and how you get to places, but I felt so guilty that I didn't know about breastfeeding. And then that changed my career as well. So I think it's, it's so interesting, but the things that you encounter along the way and how your, your path evolves over time. Well, that was me with my son in the NICU too. I was like, oh my gosh, I am board certified in swallowing disorders. And I don't know the slightest thing about what to do with my child that is trapped in the NICU and will not eat. And it was just, it was gut wrenching. And I, you know, I had nurses that were like, oh, well, you're an SLP. You should know about this stuff. And the, the thing that stunk was they, this NICU did not have an SLP. They didn't have anybody that addressed feeding issues. It was just the nurses and all they knew were you know, the volume driven feeding methods. And, and so I was just bringing in articles after I was up all night pumping, researching everything I could possibly find. I was bringing stuff in for them, sharing stuff with them. And, you know, they were wonderful, but they just didn't have anybody that specialized in it. So it's, it's interesting now that, you know, I worked with geriatrics for 15 years and now I'm just, I find myself doing, having more conversations on, on peds. And, you know, I've done a few presentations and I'm like, who am I to talk about this? But I have such the parent perspective that I want SLPs to know about. So if this is my new calling, then I guess I'm running with it. So. I know. And, and isn't it, I think, I think it's, it's so frustrating to hear it as you have all that knowledge, but I do think when it's your own child, all your knowledge goes out the window. I, I have yeah, so yeah. many clients where the yeah. mom is a speech pathologist. <laughs> They're my most difficult Yes. Because they know yes. so much and they overthink things. I'm like, oh no, another speech yeah. pathologist parent. What am I going to do? But I, yeah. I think it's, yeah. it's, it's so tough because you do know enough to know, okay, I'm not getting the help that I need here. What do I do? And I think also it makes you better at what you do because now you realize the panic mode that parents go into when they don't feel like they can help their baby. And that feeding is what kept them in the NICU. You couldn't get them to go home. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's, what, what I love really is, is I, I love my son's SLP now is feeding therapist. She's, I just love her to pieces. We're actually good friends now, but she's been with him the last two years. But I think what I love about her so much is she talks to me like I'm a mom. Like she does not talk to me in SLP language at all. Like we'll talk outside of you know, we'll go for coffee and, and talk outside of his dealings and, and talk SLP world. But when it's him, I'm mom. And I, I love that so much about that because I've had other therapists with him before and they've talked to me like an SLP. And I'm like, I, and I can't, it's interesting how you compartmentalize your life, right? Like when you're home with your child, you're mom, when you're at work, you're SLP. So it's, it, I hated that when they would say, well, you know, this stuff. And I'm like, well, but I do, but not in the context of my own child. Like, 
So it's, it's a very interesting dynamic. And, and I'm just, I'm so glad that our SLP now gets that. And she talks to me just like a mom, like, Hey, Teresa, try this food with them. I'm like, Oh, I didn't even think of that. Like, I, I think that's great that she does that because I do again think that our, not our knowledge goes out the window when it's our, there's so many other feelings. I think that's the best way to right, say it. Feelings yeah. attached to it. It's, it's really, really difficult. I, I remember when my, I was in a conference with my son when he was in kindergarten and the, and the teacher was recommending recommending all these different things that I should do with them. And she was recommending all these fine motor things. And I'm like, Oh my God, it's my second child. I've not been working on any of that stuff. And you know, here it is. I I'm, I'm on a developmental team. I know all these things. It was so embarrassing because I was thankful that I don't think she knew what my profession was, but sometimes when it's our own kid are just everything we know kind of goes out the window, honestly. Yeah. What type of chromosomal issue does your son have? So he has an unbalanced translocation of the ninth and the 13th chromosomes. So when he was born, I believe there was, I think when he was born, there was nine other documented cases in the world. And now he's going to be seven soon. I believe last time I sort of checked the online database, there was like 21. So it's just such a small, and what's interesting about this specific chromosomal abnormality is every kid is so different. So, you know, we don't, we don't have a name, which is really, I struggled with that so badly because it was like, I wanted a community so bad when he was first born and I wasn't welcome in the Down syndrome community because he didn't have one. I have a few friends in the Angelman syndrome community and I couldn't go there because my son didn't have that. And it was, it stunk. Like, I don't, I don't know, maybe I need to make one for kids with no names. I don't, you should though, because I don't know. I think yeah. that that's how people support each other. You should do that because even if they're presenting differently, there might be some similarities and you could at least support each other and say, Oh my goodness, this is really hard to navigate. You know, and yeah. I think, that- I think what's interesting now is like he goes to a, a school that specializes in, in kids with autism. And I'm, I'm so surprised how sort of the autistic community has welcomed us in because I never, and I don't mean this to sound horrible. I never put him in that group. I never, you know, he has so many other, you know, feeding issues. He's nonverbal. He's non-ambulatory. He uses a walker, but I, I mean, he's just, it's the best place for him right now. And it's, I, I love it, but it's just, you know, you, you don't always know what, you know, what you're getting into, or I had no idea that this, this would be our home. So, and, and, you know, I know somebody whose daughter has down syndrome and she's been welcomed into the deaf community. She actually goes to yeah. a preschool where in a, in a deaf school and, and we've accepted her and she's doing great with the sign language piece. Yeah. So yeah. I, yeah. So interesting. So see, you found a home, which is good. But, yeah, we did. But it, it yeah. is, I do think it's important <laughs> for parents to have support. And I think, you know, there, there's actually an Instagram account now called able appetites and it was started by two moms who have babies with Down syndrome who wanted to do baby led weaning. And they had seen a a class that I think I had done for the National Association of Down Syndrome years ago. And they contacted me and they said, we don't know if you know this, but we started this Instagram for babies with Down syndrome where parents want to do baby led weaning. And I'm like, and I looked back at like the presentation that they had seen. I'm like, I didn't even remember where it was from or exactly when I did it. But anyway, that's a great community. You should see how active that that is because all these moms 
on there and they're all supporting each other. It's so, so nice to see that. And I think a big change that's been made is when you look now, lots of babies with Down syndrome aren't sitting there just opening their mouth while someone puts a spoon in it. They're bringing the food to their own mouth. They're biting and gnawing on things. It's really changed things for that population. And I think parents see that. And, you know, you have a, a, a parent who's just had a baby with Down syndrome and she sees an eight-month-old with Down syndrome, you know, feeding themselves. That's really exciting for them. So it's really, it's created a really great community for feeding and it's really exciting to watch. Yeah. Awesome. I, I love your work, Jill. I love your passion. I, I, I love everything. I could, I'm sure we could talk for years and years and years. So, um, any, anything else you want to touch on? I think we touched no, on. No, I would just, um, I'd just say that any, if anybody wants any more information that, um, they can follow my, I have a professional Instagram called at Jill Raven, A B L W, which stands for adaptive baby led weaning. I do have a website that's coming soon. I'm hopefully it'll be up and going in January and I'm going to have some webinars on there for parents and professionals. And I also teach, um, once a month, I teach a transition to solids class for neurotypical babies. And I also teach a class for parents who have neurodivergent babies on how to transition to baby led weaning. Awesome. I love it. Thank you so much, Jill. You're welcome. Thank you. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.